Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, make your second half of life even better than the first. November is National Family Caregivers Month, a time to honor caregivers across the country, raise awareness about caregiving issues, and increase support for the roughly 53 million family caregivers across America. There's so much for caregivers to manage, concerns like legal and financial planning, coordination of health care needs, lots of household tasks, not to mention the emotional concerns of parents and their adult children dealing with the reversal of the traditional roles. That's why many experts say that caring for an older loved one is one of the most generous gifts we can give and perhaps one of the most challenging jobs we'll ever undertake. In today's episode, we'll talk with Iris Buckler, an award-winning author of Role Reversal, How to Care for Yourself and Your Aging Parents, about her personal and professional journey as a long-term patient advocate and counselor to individuals and families. She'll explain how she facilitates family conversations to plan appropriate care plans, how she helps family members through emotional struggles, anxiety, isolation, depression, and how she confronts issues of ageism and youngism, misperceptions on both parts of younger and older generations. And she'll talk about difficult transitions toward the end of life, changing with change, dealing with change, loss, and grief, helping people create ethical wills to find avenues of lead, to leave behind an emotional legacy, not just physical assets. So now let's meet our guest, Iris Walkley. Iris, welcome back to the show. It's so great to be back with you, Ron. Thanks for having me. Yes. Uh, so for our for our guests, uh, Iris was with us uh, last year, and I thought she was terrific. And I invited her back for an encore performance because okay. caregiving, as she and I've been discussing before the show, is a is not a stay. It's a growing issue, and it's continued to grow year after year. So before we dive into that, Iris, uh, you know, f- for the benefit of our guests who may have not heard you in the previous show, give us a little background on how you got to where you are today, because every person I've talked to in this field has, you know, personal uh, story or series of stories that I think really, you know, inform how you think about the issues today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've I've been a medical social worker for 40 years now. And Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in high school, I, there was a hospital nearby and I told myself I wanted to work there. And I, I got a job there as a medical social worker working on the rehabilitation unit And so the people that came in that unit were there for catastrophic reasons. They had strokes, amputations, burns, um, head injuries. So there was a a huge caregiving component to why they were there. And I worked with all of them, counseling them and their families. Uh, And so that's where I became interested in caregiving and how medical medical crises can can change people's lives in in a split second and how ill prepared we all are to deal with that. On a personal level, uh, I was a caregiver for my mom and my dad. My dad died seven years ago now. But also I was a caregiver for two friends who were my age and who were single. And what happened was a group of friends banded together just as family would. And we mm-hmm. we became their caregivers and, and helped them to die with dignity and helped them to get what they needed as, they, as their life ended. And it... I have to say all of it was so um, personally rewarding and the intimacy that comes with caregiving uh, is a really powerful moving, moving force. 
Yes, that's, um, I think that, you know, knowledge about caregiving is really, it's, I guess they call it experiential learning. That's what, you know, a lot of people go through these experiences and it really informs you. And also I think, you know, you know, it lends to your passion about it because you see the need, you see how much it means to people and how much it means to yourself to be able to do so. I see it as a challenge, but a privilege as well uh, to be with people when they need you the most and, and so many incredible things can happen. It's very powerful, very powerful. And every caregiving experience is different. All four of my experiences as a caregiver were very unique based on the person that I was with and the support team that was surrounding us. Right. Now let's dive into one of the, the there, there are lots of dimensions to it, as uh, I mentioned in the introduction. Um, but one of the issues that's really uh, come to fore a lot with the, especially with the pandemic, it, it didn't, pandemic didn't create these issues, but certainly um, shone a light on it, which is issues of mental health. And, and um, you know, the issues for caregivers, you know, in, I guess the, the term now they call it, you know, is a lot of self-care. Um, how do you make sure that, you know, in caring for someone, you take care of yourself? And uh, so there are lots of issues about stress and anxiety, depression. So I'm sure this has come up quite a bit in your work. So talk a bit about that, about how you handle these issues. Yeah, I think every caregiver goes through those three mental health symptoms that you described. I certainly know I did. Uh, I remember staying up with anxiety in the middle of the night because calls about my dad came between midnight and 7 a.m. inevitably, and I couldn't sleep. So depression, anxiety, and stress are the three governing mental health issues. But something that's not talked about as much is the physical symptoms that go along with that as well. And I just want to mention those so people are aware. Um, Not surprising, they'll be connected with anxiety and depression. Digestive issues is one of the top ones where you mm. you have gut issues. That's huge. Lots of times people are eating too much or not eating at all, and that mm. affects your body. Um, and also um, headaches and body aches from tension and from stress. Those are uh, physical symptoms that occur as well. Lack of sleep is another physical symptom that occurs too. So those are all red light warning warning signs for caregivers to be aware of. I usually tell caregivers when I'm working with them, there are three things you can do to help sort of ward off those symptoms as best as possible. And, and, and I want to preface this by saying 65% of caregivers are women, mm. and women are the worst at taking care of themselves. <laughs> They're great at taking care of everybody else, so that's, that's a huge factor. But I, I tell people, don't wait until you're burned out to, to address it. When mm-hmm. you're feeling those symptoms, it's it's almost too late. You want to build a plan so you don't get to that point. The other thing I tell people is when you're starting your caregiving and you're putting together a plan, it's okay to say no to something that you know you can't do. Mm-hmm. And you need to be able to do that without feeling guilt about it because you want to be realistic about what you can and you cannot do. And, of course, that may change during the course of caregiving as a condition of the person you're taking care of changes as well. And the third thing is I always tell people to carve out time for themselves, as you mentioned, all along the way, so that you have moments where you're engaged in self-care because that recharges you and it makes you a better caregiver. It can be something as silly and simple as taking a warm bath at night. It can be taking a walk. It can be spending time with friends or going out for a nice dinner. 
whatever it is that soothes you, helps your spiritual side, and energizes you emotionally and physically. And that should be a huge part of your caregiving plan. A lot of people don't include that at all, and that's when the trouble starts. Absolutely. One of the things you intimated just a few minutes ago, too, I think is uh, by, you know, when you talked about you working with others to take care of people, which is reaching out to other people for help, right? I think that's one of the things that that people feel isolated and they feel overwhelmed because they feel they have to do it themselves. And it's just like, reach out, ask people for help. Yeah, that's a huge part is being able to ask for help. And even if you don't have family close by, um, when you're starting out on a caregiving journey, if there is family, you want to identify who has what skill sets. Because it may be that someone's not geographically close, but maybe you have a, a sibling and who is a whiz about knowing about medical things or knows a lot about looking at an insurance claim. So identify who in your general vicinity, your family or your friends has skill sets and put together a caregiving team based on that. It may be you have a neighbor who's as close as a family member or relative and check with them. Um, Check with your doctor about resources in the community that you may not be aware of. If you have a loved one in a social work, in a hospital, see if there's a social worker there you can consult to see what programs are around. There may be all kinds of resources available that you're totally not aware of. That was a big part of my job is hooking people up with resources and help so that when they left the hospital, they weren't all of a sudden on their own. It's a terrifying feeling to be there. But there's more available than you're aware of if you you know where to look. Absolutely. Um, We uh, encountered this a little bit in my family where we we had – no, no, no uh, daughters. So four sons. So it, it, the men had to, had to, you know, be involved. And as you just pointed out, um, there, there are tasks that each one of you could do. You know, one brother was in South Carolina. So obviously, you know, uh, my, the rest, the other two brothers and I were on Long Island. So, but he's a doctor. So he, you know, we talked to him about some of the medical issues that he was, you know, obviously much more skilled at, at handling and, my other two brothers here, one was, is very skilled at uh, lots of organizational tasks. Um, and the other one was actually at the time, you know, with my mother living with her. So he was sort of eyes on the scene with, with the additional um, uh, hired uh, uh, caregivers as well. So each one of us had sort of a role to play. And I think that's, you know, as you point out, um, it's important to, to do it, not to, uh, to prevent people from any one person from being overburdened, but also I think it helps, you know, with certain potential resentments, right? <laughs> where, yeah. where one person feels like, well, thanks a lot. I'm the, yeah, you give me advice, but I'm the one here all the time, you know? So. Absolutely. Uh, and you, it's not day one when you become a caregiver, you have a history as a family with relationships and with roles and some of that's not resolved. And some of those things tend to bubble up in very stressful situations, <laughs> sometimes in ways we prefer not. And so it's really important to, um, to consider all of that when you're putting together a caregiving team. And um, the other thing people, another mistake people make is they put, up, they put together a caregiving plan and they put it in place and they don't allow a reevaluation time. They don't allow for changes that happen. And sometimes when you're first starting out, you don't know what you need to do as a caregiver. And so it's really important to 
to agree as a team that in a month or so we're going to reevaluate. Let's talk to each other about how things are going, what worked, what didn't work. You know, I need help with this and I didn't realize it at the time. It's hugely important too. The other thing I want to mention that's really important, Ron, that a lot of people don't know. In today's world, we're not geographically close, as you just referenced with your brothers. And there's a a website called aginglifecare.org, and it's Mm. a wonderful resource for people. And you can find a geriatric care manager there. And a geriatric care manager is someone like me who has training and expertise. They're often social workers or nurses about how to go in and assess what's needed. They can be a mediator and a help for the family. They can also be eyes and ears for family who's not geographically close. And their expertise also includes knowing the resources and programs that are in the area so they can help with additional support services if needed. So I just want to, uh, to mention that for, for your listeners because people don't know who what a geriatric care manager is. And if you go to that site, all you need to do is put in the zip code of the person who needs the help. And then you'll get a list of people that are, are skilled practitioners and can help. That's a really good resource. And as you pointed out, they're, uh, they're just increasing numbers of families where, you know, the, the adult children caregivers are, are often thousands of miles away from uh, their parents generally. So how do you find resources where, where you need them in the areas that you need them? So yeah. that's, that's a great resource. My, my sister lived in, lives in England. And so when my father got sick, she, she wanted to help. And so what, what, luckily she had financial resources. So, so that was a way she could help. And then there came a point where we needed some, some respite. My sister and I, who are local, needed some help. She came in, and then my brother's in San Francisco, and he came in when we needed a look to be recharged and we needed a little break. So Right. Yeah, and I think the other thing that people aren't aware of, I, I was not aware of, I, to be honest, at the time, in terms of getting resources and help and ideas, is that there are lots of caregiver support groups. Um, Absolutely. Um, they're, they're in the community. And, and, you know, another great thing, some people will say, well, I don't have time to go to a support group. And some people are a little leery about being person to person with people. Mm-hmm. But and that's the beauty. You can go and find support groups, caregiver support groups online. And there's chat rooms. And so you can meet with people who are in the same position you are. And it's a wonderful thing for a few reasons, one of which sometimes you feel totally isolated and alone as a caregiver. It helps you feel less alone. Also, hearing other people are feeling the same things you are normalizes your experience and helps you kind of see that, oh, yeah, I'm not crazy or what I'm doing isn't isn't the right thing, but this is something else I can do because they'll give you tips about what they did that seemed to work. And um, it's a wonderful, wonderful, powerful resource that I hope people will tap into. Family Caregiver Alliance offers that, and um, and different different places um, you can go for that. If you just Google caregiver support groups, that would be something that you could go. Also, the Caregiver Alliance group also offers online chat groups too that you can go to. Yeah, and I think what's interesting too is that there there's increasing specificity too. So you can get different levels or different types of care. So I know, right. you know, you can go to the, the Alzheimer's association or other Alzheimer's groups. Right. If, if you're caring for a loved one with, uh, with dementia, there are caregiver support groups specifically for those kinds of caregiving situations. So absolutely. There's caregiver groups for parents that are taking care of kids that need help. Um, 
everything is out there and you can find it if you just if you just google google uh support group for parents who have children with uh spina bifida for example they right. can find they can find it right right so this is the very positive side of the internet <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> the a- access to information you can do it yes yeah so um so before the the show we were talking a little bit um iris about you know um uh, sort of perceptions of caregiving and who's involved. And, um, you know, one of the things I mentioned was, you know, our notion that uh, for, for myself, speaking for myself as a baby boomer, um, you know, we think about us, well, primarily, you know, we, it was us getting involved with taking care of our older parents, you know, the, the post-generation, uh, post-war generation. Uh, but increasingly, this is becoming um, an issue, uh not only for us, but our children and the next generation. So talk about your observations about that. Uh, Absolutely. And I'm a boomer as you are. And some people in our group need caregiving now as well. Um, But I think it's really important. One of the things I mentioned to you, the pandemic changed everything. Hmm. A lot of us boomers um, who were the caregivers got sick and couldn't or couldn't leave our homes and and what happened was, God bless them, Gen Z, which is uh, 10 to 25-year-olds, and the millennials, which is 26 to 41, and Gen Xers, which is 42 to 57, they all picked up the reins, and they, they stepped up, and they took on the caregiving roles that a lot of the boomers had. And um, it was remarkable, the numbers that, that came in, and they really, really helped get families um, get through get through the the, the the harshness of the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, one of the things you and I were talking about too is this notion that that uh, <laughs> that that we've been concerned about as you know as we moved away from our parents and you know we were the the mobile generation the, of boomers and and then our now continue to move away and that we we've been worried about you know sort of I guess personally about like, are, are we going to be elder orphans? Like all our kids move away and no one's going to take care of us. But, but that I don't think is going to be the case. And I think that people, as you point out, have stepped up. Yeah. And I, I think we'd be remiss if we did mention the sandwich generation too, Ron. Mm-hmm. A lot of those kids are back at home now, those college kids and that. And so um, sandwich means you're, you've got your kids with you and your, your aging parents. And, and so those sandwich adult young adult kids can come in and, and they can they can lend a hand and do and do tasks and assist too and that makes it a stronger um, caregiving experience for everybody yeah. and you can be a role model for your adult your young adult kids and they can learn from that right yeah I like to refer to it now as the the club sandwich generation <laughs> 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 because because you know right because a lot of people, uh, in their 60s and 70s are now taking care of their parents in their 90s, right? Yep. And then we're living longer. Yep, yep, yep. And that's 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 the that's the reality of it. It's the good it's the good reality of it. Um, so uh, so we're gonna I think we're gonna shift a little bit uh, to your book, um, but we're gonna take a break fairly soon. So um, uh, but we'll, we'll talk more about specifically your notion of role reversal and just what are the emotional components of that? Um, because I think that that's something that people do. There's a lot to talk about there in terms of, um, you know, what, what, uh, what we face, you know, psychologically and emotionally. Uh, but we're going to take another, we're going to take a short break right now. 
But folks, don't go anywhere. We'll be talking when we get back from our break. We'll be talking much more with Iris Iris uh, Wachler, the author of the award-winning book "How to Care for uh, Role Reversal: How to Care for Yourself and Your Aging Parents." So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Um, welcome back, folks, to 45 Forward. We're talking with Iris Wackler, um, a patient advocate and licensed clinical social worker for 40 years, the author of Role Reversal, How to Care for Yourself and Your Aging Parents. Seem to have a little bit of interference here. Um, but um, uh, before we continue, I wanted to um, uh, just mention to the audience that you can learn much more about Iris um, by going to her website, um, uh, which, which is, um, uh, what's your website's called, Iris? Uh, well, I, my website is um, iWeichler. It's let me get it. It's uh, iWeichlerWPEngine.com. Okay. Well, that that by the way, if you go to um, uh, my Rowell Resources website uh, and click on the forty-five forward tab, is ROELresources.com. Click on the forty-five forward tab, and you can click on the episode. Uh, there, uh, if you want to listen to it again, but there are resources yeah. there and their contact information for Iris and her website. So, um, uh, so now uh, I wanted to just shift a little bit to talk more about your book specifically, and just you know the the title itself, role reversal, because this is something that I think that you know that that is uh, a reality. It's an emotional issue, as um, you know, the 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 adult children now reverse their role of taking care of their parents. And some of the things that people deal with emotionally, psychologically, um, in terms of making this switch and what things to watch out for. Yeah, I think that's it's so important. And that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges about this. And, and as I mentioned to you before we started the show, we 
bring our previous relationships with us, and sometimes that can that can really um, play into the, the caregiving relationship. And so I think one of the things that happens is uh, adult children tend to infantilize their older aging parents, and that that creates a lot of conflict and a lot of unrest. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is we don't have the caregiving conversation when our parents are younger and healthier. And your goal is to make it a collaboration, not a confrontation. You don't want to wait till there's a medical crisis where you have to make decisions and you go in there and you say, I don't care what you say, mom, it's time that you need to see a doctor. You want to, you want to have a clear head and you want to have everybody working together. I told you a story about my 22-year-old daughter coming to me and saying, Mom, I want to sit down and talk to you about what your wishes are when you get older. And so that's, that's really, really important to, to try to open that door as an adult looking at an aging parent. You want to come from a place of love. You want to come from a place where you say, I love you and I care about you and it's really important for me to understand what your wishes are as you get older. It's great that you're healthy now, but I want to know what to do if a medical issue should arise, and I want you to be a part of that decision. That immediately cuts down on a lot of the conflict and a lot of um, difficulty that comes when that when that role reversal is changing. So you want to best the message you want to give your parents, if it's appropriate, is I want to hear your thoughts about it. When you get older, do you want to stay at home? When you get older, is it okay for your kids to take care of you and family? Are you okay with a healthcare professional if the doctor recommends that? How do you feel about assisted living? Um, what are your, what are the things you're most afraid about about getting older? Having these conversations is so important and it's the greatest gift uh, that your parent can give you as, as an adult a, an adult caregiver. It takes such a burden off of you as a caregiver when you know, you're, you're helping reinforce the choices that your parents want you to make. My mother got really sick when she was in her 50s. She was 52. She mm. got cancer, and then it metastasized to her brain, so she was 56, wow. and she couldn't communicate. And I had to make all these decisions about her care, and I did not have a clue about what, what she wanted because it didn't occur to us at, the, at that young an age to start talking about it. And it was so hard for me to know exactly what the right thing to do was, where in contrast, my father and I had that discussion after my mom died. Mm -hmm. And I knew everything that he wanted. So as things progressed, the decisions were mutual. He respected me and I respected him. And so um, it's really important to have those discussions early as possible. That's yeah. a big mistake people don't make, that they make and they should be aware of. Yeah, and I think that as you mentioned earlier, um, uh, dealing with um, you know siblings is an is an important issue. So it's often it's often the, sometimes the most difficult issue is is, yeah. is getting consensus about how to what I call the sibling syndrome. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, and, and how do you how do you uh, are there any ground rules you set up? You know, when you have these family conversations in terms of engaging your other members of the family besides your parents? Yeah, I think I, I think one thing that happens is one one person becomes burdened by being the caregiver and they're doing all of it. And so the best thing that people can do is early on um, have a meeting with siblings or whoever else is involved. Sometimes it could be a neighbor. Sometimes it could be other relatives. Um, and, and figure out who has what skill sets. 
um, because not everyone's going to be geographically close, but that doesn't mean that they can't participate in caregiving. So in my situation, I mentioned my sister was in England, and, but she wanted to help, so she helped financially. There may be a family member who has medical knowledge or medical background, and they can help. There may be someone who has a job, but someone who doesn't, so that they may have a little more time. Figure out what skills are needed. Even like going through an insurance bill is a nightmare. And if you have someone in your family that knows how to read those, that can be a huge gift. So you figure out what skills are needed, who fits the bill, who has the right skill set. And then it, it may be that family members don't have the skills that are needed. So you may have to reach out to community programs or, as I mentioned, going to aginglifecare.org to find a, a geriatric care manager that can find someone that can help. But that's usually important. And um, and then revisiting the care plan is another thing that I think is very important, too, right. just to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Yeah. And sometimes what happens with elderly people is they have one defined medical condition, and then something else comes up, and it cascades. That's what happened with my dad, and um, he ended up needing a pacemaker, and then he had swallowing problems. And so one thing led to another, and... And that's something you all have to be aware of is that is and you want to also have a good relationship with the doctor. And if it's possible, have your your parent give a release of information so you can communicate with the physician. So you have the latest information and and, and up to date information, because one of the other things you want to do as a caregiver is educate yourself about the medical condition, how it's going to progress, what things might arise, what kinds of procedures are needed. An informed caregiver is a better prepared caregiver, and, and it can help fend off potential crises. Yeah. I think that um, what you're describing, too, um, goes to the point of uh, just the expectation just to be <laughs> constantly um, prepared for change. Yes. Because I think that that's one of the things where we think, okay, now we got it. It's like, yeah, you have it right now, but, you know, this is part of a journey like every journey. And I think that's, and I admit, I, part of that was um, uh, when I was involved with, with my brothers for quite a while with our mom, things really changed over the years. And you really had to be flexible and adaptable and open to, okay, this is working now, but it's not going to work next year. So, right. you know, being able to really deal with that. Um, Change is a constant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. really true. Yeah. Well, I wanted to just um, uh, broaden a little bit, just um, talking about kind of a more general issues about uh, we've touched on a little bit, but it, just the whole issue that um, as society has changed, a lot of people, we, you know, we think about family caregiving and it's true, but a lot of um, a lot of older people are aging alone. And I think this came to be spotlighted by the pandemic uh, in terms of talking about social isolation, but um, uh, you have any thoughts about how we as a society deal with this issue? I, I think we, we had, I had somebody on um, last year who was an expert in, in solo aging. And she mentioned to me that, uh, you know, about a third of the U.S. population as they get older is alone. You know, so how yeah. do we, how do we address this, you know, in terms of caregiving as we get older? Well, I think you need to try to incorporate as much opportunity for socialization as possible, uh, People might go to a house of worship, and that can be a wonderful place to find help. And um, also, adult there are adult daycare programs or senior centers in people's communities. Reaching out to them is a really good thing. Oftentimes, they provide transportation. They provide meals. 
So for someone who's isolated and can't get out, that's a really important resource as well. Um, and also recruiting neighbors and, and friends can be really key too. Most of us, many of us know our neighbors. And so that can be really reassuring for family members who aren't geographically close, having a, a relationship with a neighbor so they agree to check in on on your loved one. Um, those are all opportunities for socialization and, and to upgrade safety too. Yeah. And I think as you mentioned with your one of your situations, um, recognizing sometimes when, when somebody is alone, it's like, okay, well, let's put together a care plan for them. You know, it doesn't have to be family members, but their friends, you know, can, can do like, just as you mentioned earlier, uh, members of the family taking on different skills and tasks and, and expertise. You can do that with a circle of friends. I think that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's so important. As I mentioned to you, um, I had the privilege of taking care of two of my friends who were my age, but they were single and, they had no family in the area. And so their friends were family. And so right. we got together as a caregiving team and uh, worked, worked with them to find out what they wanted, what they needed, and, and we helped them all the way through. We set up a plan among ourselves of who was gonna be there for what and what, what was gonna be covered, what needed to be covered. And it was uh, a beautiful, beautiful experience. I felt so privileged to be a part of the caregiving team that was going to work on that. Uh, I just, uh, the New York Times is in the process right now of putting together an article and I participated in that. They interviewed mm -hmm. me about taking care of a friend and they're going to be talking uh, talking about caregiving and about friends caregiving and different different permeations of caregiving teams. And that should be coming out soon. Okay, good. Well, keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Um, good. Um, now, talking about, you know, the, the changing conditions, I mean, I, I, one of the difficult situations is uh, when, you know, people do want to age in, in, in their home um, if, as they get older. Sometimes they're isolated. So there's the issue that you just mentioned about um, um, uh, maintaining socialization and connection. But what about, you know, when it how do you engage in that that difficult transition when you really person can't stay home anymore? How do you handle that conversation? Yeah, a couple things come to mind. One is if you did what I suggested earlier and you have that early caregiver conversation, that should be a piece of it. Mm -hmm. When you're not able to do this, will you consider the next step, assisted living? And um, and so it's important to, to talk about that. Include them in the decision and also choosing the place as much as possible. In my dad's situation, um, I took him to a few different places, and he was the one that actually chose the place that we went to. So it, he felt like he it was a part of his choice, and that was really great. And, and in my dad's situation, again, you want to – and my mother-in-law right now is in assisted living. And one of the beautiful things about it is a lot of her lifelong friends are there too. Oh. And so they were in similar places in their lives. So. It was uh, not a hard decision for her to go there, and she loves being there and being with old and dear older friends and lifelong friends. In my dad's case, my dad was a World War II veteran, and so what I did was I arranged at the place he was thinking about. Um, I talked to the director, and we had some other World War II vets come and meet mm. him when we did a visit, and so there was an immediate bond from my dad. So taking that little extra step sometimes and finding people in the community that you think might help support that transition is, is a really good move, I think, an important thing to think about. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. And I think it's, um, 
as you pointed out in other situations, um, the key is is doing it before you absolutely need to do it, right? So before, if your if your uh, loved one unfortunately has a fall or something where like no, they they absolutely they can't live at home anymore, and then you've got to make a rush decision, or you you know, the, or they're in re- rehab and they can't come back home. Uh, that's where you know I think that. Um, you know, I mean, you do what you have to do, but it's not optimal to do it that way. Right. And one, one final piece I would add for this, Ron, is um, they have a doctor and they usually respect the doctor. And mm-hmm. sometimes they don't want to hear it from their adult children, but they will listen to what their doctor says. So I would say recruit recruit your doctor, recruit your spirit, the, their spiritual leader, anyone you know that they listen to and they respect. And that's another way you can kind of get them to reconsider and be more open to the change. Sometimes, depending on what your relationship is as an adult child to your aging parent, they may not want to listen to what you have to say. <laughs> oh, Again, really? That, that, that happens? That yeah, happens? <laughs> that happens once or twice. <laughs> and so you want to keep that in mind. And you want to, as a family, you want to choose who's the best spokesperson in your family to, to bring that conversation up. It may not be the person that's geographically close. It may be somebody else. But that's a really important choice that needs to be made in terms of thinking about caregiving, too. Who, who can be the good spokesperson in the family to, to be the one, that bridge with the person that needs the care? Yeah. Now, earlier you mentioned, I mean, just, again, sort of broadening our discussion a bit about, you know, looking at issues of caregiving and sort of broader issues. So I know you're very passionate, too, about the issue of, of ageism. And, yes. and, but, and you mentioned to me, too, about this notion of ageism and youngism, which I thought was that was an interesting coinage. So so tell me this before we get to the break. Let's let's talk about this a little bit about these. OK. Both. Yeah. Uh, ageism is basically making false assumptions about someone just because of their age. And that's true for youngism, too. And my favorite story about ageism was when I was working in the hospital, I had a patient who was in her mid 80s who was just a delight. She was there for a stroke. And uh, I would visit her every day and talk with her. Uh, one day I went to the nursing station and the, the nurses and people there were sort of laughing. She was buzzing the nursing station and saying, there's, there's a lizard next to my bed. And people were just laughing hysterically because they thought she was hallucinating and delusional. Mm-hmm. I knew this woman and I knew she wasn't. And so I went down, down the hall and her room was the first room there, and it was next to the family area where we had a fish tank, and there was a salamander living in the fish tank, and he decided to make a field trip. He jumped out of the fish tank and marched across the hall and landed right next to her bed, and sure enough, when I walked in the room, there he was looking her in the eye. <laughs> so they totally discounted her because because of her age. Um, and on the reverse end, youngism, people make false assumptions about people who are younger because maybe they have piercings and tattoos and they assume they won't be good employees or they're not hardworking or they're not dedicated. And it's important not to judge someone because of their age. That's that's such a huge mistake that we all make. People assume because you're older, you're cognitively impaired, or you can't use a computer, and and those kinds of uh, arbitrary assumptions really hinder our our ability to get to know each other cross generationally, which is so such a wonderful thing to share your experience and knowledge with other generations. Yeah, I think that that's that's incredibly important, as you just pointed out. And I think I think that uh, one one place that I've seen this happening, uh, this sort of cross generational stuff, is um, increasingly in in senior centers, where yeah. the seniors are inviting in, 
younger generations and having conversations, just, you know, like family conversations where, you, you know, they actually sit down and they have um, sort of crosstalk about, okay, what are your stereotypes about older people? What are your stereotypes about younger people? And then you exchange them. And it's, it's often, a, you know, a funny, but um, educational process where people kind of put it right Absolutely. out there. Yeah. And there are programs where, for example, daycare kids will come to a senior center and it's wonderful. It helps the older people feel younger and it helps the younger kids not be afraid of people that are older. Right. And um, I, I had the privilege of hearing Maggie Kuhn, who was a Grey Panther and a great activist, and she talked about how she purposely lived in a cross-generational, multi-generational home, and that was, she learned so much from it, and it was a wonderful experience for all the generations. Yeah. So we're going to take another quick break, Iris, but uh, folks, uh, we have one more terrific segment coming up. So we'll be talking much more with Iris Wachler, the author of the award-winning book, Role Reversal, How to Care for Yourself and Your Aging Parents. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to Melody Edmondson's The Space of the Waste radio program. This companion piece to her successful guidebook series, The Space of the Waste, focuses on body types and how to make your waist length flattering, no matter what your body type is. Guests include designers, merchandise managers, factory owners, and more. You'll also find out what accessories will complement your body shape and waist length. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking with Iris Wachler, a patient advocate and licensed clinical social worker for 40 years and author of Role Reversal, How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents. Uh, before the break, we were talking about ageism 
and uh, certainly the, the stereotypes and perceptions about ageism and youngism, you know, on the flip side, stereotypes about younger people. Um, and so I, I think that um, I think we agree that um, uh, certainly we, we all become older. You know, it's one of these interesting uh, ironies. Uh, they're you know, seniors are sort of a protected class. And yet that's where we all go, no matter what race or ethnicity. Um, so it's, it's important to break down these stereotypes and to main, which is also breaking down the stereotypes that, that you just, um, uh, going to the premise of my show, which is that as you move forward through midlife, you can be vital and productive and wiser. And, uh, in fact, even more enriched in certain ways that you wouldn't have been able to understand when you were younger. Um, so, um, so it is about breaking down the stereotypes about, you know, being healthier and productive as we get older. Um, at the same time, there is this issue of, of loss and there are certain losses in life. And I know that you've dealt with this and I know you've, um, you know, you mentioned earlier with, with Alzheimer's and dementia. So there, there is this issue of, of um, how you work with people too, who inevitably you suffer loss in life. You know, you lose people, you do lose certain physical abilities. So how do we cope with these losses? Yeah, I, I'm writing a lot about grief right now. Those, those are a lot of the articles that I'm writing. And so mm -hmm. I think it's so important. And for caregivers, it's kind of unique. And, and we all grieve in our own unique ways. But for caregivers, there's, there's two different kinds of grieving. One is the the loss and the feelings we have when we see the person we knew changing as a caregiver and doing less and not being able to do as much as they can and be more physically dependent. And there's grief around that, losing the person you knew. And then there's a second period of grief when that person actually dies. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for caregivers to be aware of both of those. Um, and also for people to know that Everyone grieves in their own way, and there's not a right or wrong way to grieve. And sometimes people are saying, are told when they've had a bad loss, you should feel this way, or you're moving, you're not spending enough time grieving, or people are really familiar with Kubler-Ross's model of grief, the five stages of grief. And, um, and what I want to tell people is you don't necessarily go through all of those stages. Mm -hmm. And when you do... It, you may end up coming back another time because one of the things that's happened with Kubler-Ross's model of grief is that she just worked with terminally ill people. And we grieve for a lot of things, not necessarily terminal illness. People grieve when they lose a pet. People grieve when they get divorced. People grieve when they lose a job. They grieve when they, grieve when they lose a friend. So there's all different elements to grief and it's circ the circumstances are unique and um, one of the things people I tell people is it's okay to feel whatever you feel and acknowledge those feelings and don't judge yourself or criticize yourself for whatever you're feeling. That's one of the most important messages that I give people that I work with. And also to emphasize the uniqueness of it and to not tell yourself I have to do it this particular way or there's something wrong with me. Uh, I also try to tell people that it's really important to find a person you feel connected with that can bring you comfort. It's really helpful to talk about your feelings as much as you can with someone that you trust. Caregivers are so isolated, too, and lots of times they don't make time to talk to others about how they're really feeling. But it's really important to to get those feelings out. And, and if you don't have anyone in your life that you can talk to, journaling is a really powerful tool as mm -hmm. well 
by writing down your feelings, it helps you sort them out and clarify them. And it can be a marker for you. You can go back and say, oh, I was, I was here when, it, when this happened and now I'm here. You can see the changes in yourself. And, and that's a, a really, really great way to, to sort of sort through your feelings as well. And the other thing I tell people is it's really important to find some meaning or purpose when you've, you've experienced a really significant loss. Mm-hmm. And you see that all the time in, in, the, in our world today. Um, parents who've lost a child to suicide get involved with suicide prevention programs or people who have lost a, a loved one through gun violence start becoming involved in programs around preventing gun violence. And bringing that meaning or purpose to your life, if you lose someone to cancer, joining the American Cancer Society or doing a cancer walk, fundraising thing, whatever it is, that can really, really help the healing process. It can really make a difference when you feel out of a great loss that you've learned something and you want to help others. Um, That can really make a difference. Yeah. One thing that you've uh, talked to me about, um, and I wanted you to uh, explain a little bit more about this idea of ethical wills. Um, about yeah. and in terms of you know uh, again from the caregiver's perspective of working with um, your loved one uh, to talk about you know what kind of legacy they wanted to leave you know again before they they pass on. Ethical wills are the most wonderful gift you can give leave your family. My husband's grandfather wrote an ethical will. Mm. They had um, a place in Michigan for a hundred years. Five Hmm. generations went there and spent time together. And in his ethical will, what he talked about, and it's in a beautiful spot on Lake Michigan near a a state national park, which has sand dunes. He talked about the beauty of being there, about what the land meant to him, about what the time meant to him, seeing different generations come there, um, what it meant to the family. It was a place to come to for for calm, for uh, getting resilient, Mm -hmm. for overcoming. And so... That's what an ethical will does. It talks to your family about your hopes and your dreams, the things in your life that you achieved that meant so much to you, what their relationships meant to you. It can include your philosophy of life, and it can also include your thoughts about death. Oftentimes, we don't have that conversation with our loved ones about what it means to die. Mm -hmm. And that can bring so much, and it can help with closure, Um, I mentioned that I helped take care of a friend, and he was the most fearless person I ever worked with. He was not afraid of dying, and the way that he described it, and he and I talked about death a lot, Mm. and uh, the the hospice social worker came in and said, does he need help? And I said, I don't think so, but find out from him, and he described his time on earth with his little finger, his two fingers next to each other, and he described his thoughts about death. He put his arms out as wide as they could go. And he was saying to us, I'm not afraid of dying. I think that whatever happens afterward is something that's going to be extraordinary. And don't worry about, about my dying. I'm going to be fine. And I'm, I'm not afraid. And that meant so much to those of us <laughs> that took care of him and, so, and to his family as well. So those conversations and, and including that in an ethical will can bring so much comfort to people. Yeah. Um, I have a colleague, um, her name is Susan Caperso. She's an end-of-life doula. Uh, one of the things she she works on, she talks about something that's similar to what you're saying, which is, you know, she has this um, uh, approach with people, um, you know, the story of me. So some of it's, you know, your, your thoughts about death, but also about 
what your thoughts were about life. You know, again, mm-hmm. as you said, you know, what were the things that meant were important to you? You know, what you want people to remember about you? Um, uh, you know, it's it's that's the sort of thing that that your um, you know your heirs you know don't, don't get a chance. You know, besides your physical assets, like okay, we inherited this house, but what what was life like? What was important to you? You know, what did, what did you think that that now? Um, that I might think, you know, as your heir, that's, um, you know, something of, of value. So I think that's a, a terrific thing to, that this, that complements the, this ethical will. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have just a few minutes left, but any, 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 any just general thoughts in the last minute or so about your thoughts about where you would like caregiving to go as a country, you know, more, more broadly? Well, I, me- I mentioned to you that uh, the Family Caregiving Advisory Council released a report just in September in mm-hmm. 21, and they've made all kinds of recommendations. Caregivers need more support. They need more financial support. They need more programs. They need accessibility to them, and it needs to be in, in a more equal system. Just because you have a lot of money, people with less money should have the same opportunities. And so that's what this committee recommended. And they, and also another issue for a lot of people is when they're working and they're trying to juggle work and caregiving, putting programs in place at companies where you can arrange with your supervisor or your boss to spend some time caregiving and, and figure out a way where maybe someone can cover you or you can work from home. Um, so things that can be incorporated so that you can you can help with that difficult balance. It's really important to acknowledge because as you mentioned at the start of the show, there's 53 million people that are caregivers and post-pandemic that number's gone up by millions. So right. there's a lot of us, none of, very few of us have been untouched. Yes, right. So there's much more to talk about. Uh, that's where I'll have to leave it today. Um, I just want to thank you, Iris, for a terrific show. And I'll be sure to have you back. These are continuing issues. So we can have you back again for another show. Uh, if people want to reach you, what, I know that you're on Facebook and LinkedIn. They can reach you there. And is there any particular way pe- you want people to contact you? Um, my Facebook page is, uh, is facebook.com, uh, role reversal one. My Twitter page is, is Iris Weichler at Twitter. And I post articles there. Um, on Twitter? On Twitter and Facebook, okay. caregiving articles Monday through Friday. And um, my my website is com, and you can contact me directly there. There's loads of information there about caregiving as well. And you can buy my book on my website too, and you can buy it on Amazon and or your local bookstore. Great. Okay. So thanks again, folks. If you missed my conversation with Iris, you can listen to it as a podcast in Voice America or uh, go to my show, 45 Forward, or listen to it on my website, uh, rowellresources.com. So be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, when I'll be talking with Dr. Stephen Post, an international speaker, best-selling author, and director for the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University. So until then, folks, keep moving forward, 45 Forward. Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Rowell, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.